Scotland suffered three murders in the late 1960s that have never been solved, and that many think were committed by only one man, a serial killer known only as Bible John. This case has taken on legendary status. But was there only one killer, as many believe? This week we explore the mythical case of Scotland's Zodiac Killer, Bible John. about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome in, boys and girls, to yet another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden, your favorite podcast, at least your favorite podcast hosted by me, your old buddy Brad, criminal defense attorney extraordinaire, just call me Atticus Finch, because I too hail from Alabama, and if you don't get that reference, you need to read a little bit more. So today we're discussing Bible John, an unidentified serial killer who is thought to have murdered three young women between 1968 and 1969 in Glasgow, Scotland. I mean, the murders happened. It's just thought that he committed them. Could have worded that better. This is why I need a, a personal assistant. And I'll note here that my wife, who sometimes proofreads my scripts, has the note of, so what am I, chopped liver? But uh, mega thanks to listener Grant for requesting this case to be covered. It feels like it's been a spell since we've gotten back to our roots and covered a good old unsolved murder or Pier 3. So we're just going to jump right in because I don't know how to segue very well. So before we get into the murders, let's describe the setting of this macabre drama. Glasgow in the 1960s wasn't a pleasant place. It was a little bit violent. Uh, it was kind of known for its inner city slums, you know, pockets of pretty heavy industry, and a, a robust murder rate. Most of the deaths were the result of localized gang warfare, domestic disputes, and bar brawls. But, you know, we're talking about a murder rate that was like over, it was 2.3 times higher than London's murder rate. We'll be exact. 2.3 times higher. It kind of gives you the impression that this was a town that was fighting the pool of, of time and kind of unwillingly being drugged into the modern age. Uh, one fun stat I found in 1965, so right before our case takes place, more than 850 young men were arrested just in Glasgow for possessing what's called an offensive weapon. So that would be typically knives and razors, but sometimes hatchets and swords. So, yeah, it sounds like it was the freaking Thunderdome in 1960s Glasgow. Now, having painted this bleak picture, there was a bright spot, dancing. Not in a footloose sort of way. There's no evil town council trying to make everyone miserable. That was in the records, I found at least. But dancing was a major deal for adults in Glasgow. There were just multiple giant dance halls across the city. Uh, the Albert, the Plaza, the Majestic, the Lorcano. But we're going to talk about one in particular today, and that is the Barrowland Ballroom. So the Barrowland Ballroom opened in 1934. Then it was destroyed by a fire in 1958. 
But they rebuilt it and it reopened on Christmas Eve in 1960. And it still operates today. Uh, the Northern Irish punk band Stiff Little Fingers has played sold out shows there every St. Patrick's Day since 1992. Kind of makes me sad because I have no idea who this band is. But if I was 18, I'm sure I'd have like two or three of their albums. And the worst things about growing old is losing connection with the music scene. You know, just like Grandpa Simpson said, I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. And it will happen to you. If you're still young and full of vitality and hope and excitement, and you want to visit, it's located at 244 Gallo Gate. And that's it road maybe i don't know how they do things in scotland i'm very unprepared for life in scotland should i ever have to go live there it would seem but it looks like a really really cool place at least from the google images i found it's one of those places that's so legendary in the rock world that most musicians would put it pretty high on their resume if they were allowed to perform there and from what i understand many scottish grandparents wax poetically about first meeting there now, during the late 1960s, Barrowland held a bit of a secret. See, Thursday nights were a special night. They were reserved for the over 25 crowd. And let's say it was just a night of discretion for those who attended. You know, if you showed up, your wedding ring would kind of accidentally slip into your pocket. You'd use a fake name. And it was a little slice of free love in an otherwise gloomy little city. And these Thursday night rendezvous are where our story begins. So on Thursday, February 22nd, 1968, then 25-year-old Patricia Docker, who went by Pat, was living with her parents and her young son. She decided that she wanted to go out dancing that night and told her parents she was going to the Majestic Ballroom. But... For some reason, she changed her mind after living home and ended up at Burrowland. And my guess is the change in plans, she didn't want her parents to know what she was really up to that night. Because you see, Pat was still married, but her relationship with her husband, Alex, was going pretty poorly. They had discussed divorce several times and just never had followed through with it. Now, while Pat was living with her parents, Alex lived down in Lincolnshire, about 300 miles away, close to the Royal Air Force Base, the young corporal was serving at. When Pat arrived at Burrowland, she grabbed a drink and staked out her spot to survey the scene. It didn't take her long to find a target. A dashing young man in his mid to late 20s, with reddish-brown hair and a seductive smile. She approached... The two made awkward small talk for a spell before he eventually led her to the dance floor. For the next few hours, she would be absolutely attached to this man. Then the next morning, Pat would be found dead. Half frozen, she was discovered sometime between 7 and 8 a.m. She had been dumped, totally nude, on the yards from her home. The forensic exam revealed that she had been beaten severely about the face and head, before being sexually assaulted and strangled by a belt. She was also menstruating at the time of her death, and that actually is relevant. I'm not just being weird. I mean, I'm not weird because of this. 
Um, her clothes, her watch, her purse, everything was missing. Now, they did eventually find the purse in the river cart. It was also determined that Pat was likely killed shortly upon leaving Barrowland based on the stage of rigor mortis her body was in. Subsequent police efforts to learn more about what happened discovered that at least one nearby neighbor heard a woman scream out, leave me alone, the night of her murder. And that's about all they found. Police believe for several days into their investigation that Pat was coming from the Majestic Ballroom before learning that she was actually seen at Barrowland. And that obviously probably had a negative impact on the results of their investigation. Now, some find it curious that Pat's body was left in such an easy-to-find location. Again, she was just laying in the grass, frozen and naked, where anybody who walked up could see her. And yet, while she was left in such an easy-to-find location, her items, her possessions, were disposed of so meticulously. In fact, as you may have noticed, it doesn't seem like her clothes were ever found. There's some contradicting evidence on this, but the bulk of the reports I read suggested her clothes were never found. So... I think the purpose of this, and and many others do too, I'm not alone in this for once, Um, the reason for all this was likely to destroy the physical evidence the police could have been looking for at this time, which would have been fingerprints, blood samples, or hair. You know, we weren't to the stage yet where DNA could really be investigated. At least one profiler has suggested that the fact that no effort was made to conceal Pat's body indicated that the killer was not ashamed of what he had done. This profiler also found it significant that despite carefully controlling the crime scene, there was one item left behind, and it was a soiled sanitary napkin. This profiler believed that was intentional. Now, the next murder in our little triumphant of tragedy is that of Jemima McDonald. On Saturday, August 16, 1969, so over a year later, the 32-year-old mother of three went to Barrowland to enjoy an evening of dancing. Now, she was a regular attendee at the ballroom, and her sister, Margaret, watched her kids that night. And this was kind of a typical arrangement. Margaret liked to babysit, and Jemima liked to dance. But Margaret kind of became alarmed when Jemima didn't come home that night. And the next afternoon, kind of took it upon herself to start poking around. When she heard some scary rumors. Rumors that some local children had discovered a dead body in an abandoned tenement. Margaret found the site, and sadly it was her sister Jemima that was the body. When the police arrived, the forensic investigation determined that Gemma had been raped and extensively beaten, particularly in the face. She had been strangled as well, but with her own stockings. Unlike Pat, Jemima was left clothed, though she was menstruating. Detectives were able to gather a fair amount of information, including that Jemima spent most of her night dancing with a fellow who was about six foot tall, with red hair, and was described by many partygoers as charming and charismatic. Fellow attendees also said the man was clearly well-educated 
and often dropped brief Bible verses into conversation. He also had a strong Glasgow accent, yet police deduced that he couldn't be a local because no one ever reported seeing this man outside of uh, Borrowland. Police were able to use the numerous descriptions they received from witnesses at the nightclub, or the ballroom if you want to be fancy, to create a composite drawing of the suspect. And another fun fact for y'all, this was the first time Scotland ever circulated a composite drawing in an effort to find the suspect of a crime. Now, while we can sit here and look back and Monday morning quarterback this a little bit and see that there's some connections between these two cases, police at the time didn't immediately link them together. I mean, again, they took the murders took place 16 months apart. And there are a few differences between the murder scenes, you know, the most notable being Pat being totally naked, Jemima being totally clothed. So totally forgivable for the police not to immediately latch on to these cases being related. Still, police took the step of going undercover at Borrowland to try to hunt this mystery ginger down sometime in August or September of uh, 69. However, it sounds like these undercover cops are like the ones you see on Reno 911, an amazingly underrated show, and the patrons of Verland kind of stopped showing up, which kind of upset the ownership and the management because they enjoyed the money-making aspect of owning a nightclub, and eventually they kind of ran the cops off in October. And our third murder in this little tale occurred that very month, Halloween of 1969. The victim was Helen Puddock, a 29-year-old woman who was found next to a drain pipe behind an apartment complex. She was stripped partially naked, again had been beaten heavily around the face, and had also been strangled with her own stockings. Now, for once, there was, let's say, DNA evidence left behind at the scene, but the technicians didn't preserve it in a way for it to be useful in today's world. Again, forgivable. They didn't know much about DNA evidence back then. Uh, There was evidence, however, that Helen put up one heck of a fight as her shoes and her feet were covered in grass and mud stains, and there was evidence that she tried to climb up the wet banks of the embankment that led down to where she was found next to this drain pipe. Now, she too was found with a used sanitary napkin, this one placed under her left armpit. And a huge clue in this case was that they found a deep bite mark on her thigh. Now, Helen's case was different in a much more meaningful way. She went to the Barrowland Ballroom with her sister, Jean. And Jean was at Helen's side the entire night. She was actually in the company of the killer up and until her sister's death. Almost. The man got a taxi for both her and her sister, but insisted that Jean be dropped off first. Wasn't really suspicious because the man had kind of become Helen's date for the evening. Jean had her own date, but he lived on the other side of town, so he took a bus. So... It's not so suspicious, you know, Jean probably thought they wanted to do some adult-style hugging and didn't interfere with that decision. But 
Gene saw this man and spent a lot of time with this man and was able to give the police a lot of information on this man. Okay. So his name was John. She was clear about that. His surname, she was a little unclear on. It was either Templeton, Simpleson, or Emerson, something along those lines. Either he or his cousin was a roofer. She couldn't remember which. And again, mixing him up, either he or his cousin also recently got a hole in one at a local golf course, which he bragged about. She did know that John was a teetotaler. And repeatedly quoted from the Old Testament, he described Barlin as an adulterous den of inequity and really frowned on the fact that there were married women visiting the premises and misleading men into thinking they were single. Didn't really seem to have a problem with men doing the same thing. Shockingly, right? He said, uh, Gene tried to draw him out of his shell and talk to him a little bit and said, what are you doing for Hogmanay or New Year's Day? And instead of going out and having a good time, his plans were to sit at home and pray. Yet he did not claim to be either Catholic or Protestant. Now, Gene described him physically as being about five foot ten and somewhere between the ages of 25 and 30. He was slim. He wore a very well cut suit and smoked embassy cigarettes. So with all this information, police were able to improve their composite picture and get other additional information to help narrow down the search. Police also used this information to learn when they did their initial kind of canvassing of the area. There was a late night bus driver who saw a man matching this description walking down the street about 2 a.m. And it looked like the dude had just been in a fight. He had mud stains on his jacket. He had this red welt below one of his eyes and it looked like one of his shirt cuffs had been torn and was kind of like tucked into his jacket sleeve which links us back to Helen's uh, crime scene there was actually a man's cuff link found near the body okay so after Helen's murder this is when the police kind of started putting things together they saw that these three cases were probably interconnected and it was likely the same killer behind all three. You've got three women who were married with children who met their killer at Barrowland. All three had been strangled to death. Their bodies were found in close proximity to where they lived. All three had been menstruating at the time of their death, and the killer seemed to want to highlight this fact in the way that he left the bodies i.e. all with a used sanitary napkin on or near their bodies. Also, the handbag of all three women was missing when police arrived on the scene. So, again, police used that composite picture they had developed and really just pressed the public to look at it and tell us if you see anybody that looks like this. And, and the police, like, they did a thorough search, okay? They took this picture to over 450 barbers and you know stylists in the area, not a single one of which recognized the man. They took the photos of the bite mark on Helen's thigh because it had two interesting characteristics. It had an overlapping incisor, and there was a missing tooth in the upper right jaw. And so they, they took a picture of this bite mark 
to every dentist in Glasgow and around Glasgow to see if they had a patient whose dental records would match this bite mark. And none of them did. Going back to Gene remembering about the hole-in-one, they took that picture to every golf course in the country. Guys, this is Scotland where golf was created. So that was over 400 country clubs they took this picture to. And on top of all this, more than 100 detectives were assigned to go door-to-door looking for information, and they compiled over 50,000 witness statements. That's not an exaggeration. That's not a typo. 50,000 witness statements, okay? Jean, Helen's sister, she was asked to attend over 300 police lineups. Can you imagine? 300 times she was called down to look at suspects. But she was never presented with the man that matched her remembrance of this dude. Again, police uh, started deploying undercover detectives, this time at all sorts of dance halls, attempting to locate anyone who kind of resembled John. This uh, squad of undercover detectives were (laughs) affectionately affectionately referred to as the Bible John Dancing Squad. That's just a name begging for a band, right? Or a podcast, I guess. Now, after many, many months of work and digging in and searching everywhere they could, the trail just went cold. In a last-ditch kind of Hail Mary effort to gain a lead, police took that composite picture and sent it to every British Armed Forces base in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in the Middle East, and in the Far East. I don't know how many that is, but I know the number had to be staggering. Still, and sadly, no new lead surfaced. Now, of course, the media being the media had a riot with this story. They dubbed this unknown killer Bible John and stirred the populace into a bit of a frenzy. It got so bad, it got so bad that police had to start issuing special cards to young men in Glasgow saying that they had been investigated and had been cleared and they were not Bible John. Can you imagine living in a state where people are so scared that you have to have a card that says, no, no, the police looked at me, I'm cool. Now, this hysteria also, of course, caused some detectives to turn on each other and some police officers were investigated. I mean, no one was above suspicion. Some at the time thought that the murders were a form of judgment because there's no randomness to these victims, or at least apparently there's no randomness. If, you know, John's biblical statements represent his true beliefs, the adulterous nature of these mothers apparently was an unforgivable sin in John's mind. Now, this is an interesting fact that I never could find an explanation for and can't come up with one myself. Gene's dance partner for the evening was also named John. And remember, like I said, he took a bus because he lived on the other side of town from where they were. the three of them were going before Helen died. He was never discovered. Police looked for him, uh, wanting, obviously, to interview him as another source of information. Was never found, never came forward. Never identified. He just, poof, disappeared. 
There are some that are skeptical that these three killings were the work of one man. They note, first of all, the unusually large gap in time between the first murder and the last two. They also note that it's more likely than not that Pat's murder was committed by one man, while Jemima and Helen were killed by another man based on the condition of the crime scenes. Um, while I believe there's a number of similarities in the killings, there's also a lot of key differences. Again, the last two murder scenes didn't have that same sense of being controlled or carefulness that Pat's scene had. Okay, so let's get into some of the popular suspects in this case, because there, there's a lot, but there's not, which makes no sense. And hopefully, as I explain, it'll kind of come out. So most people familiar with this case believe that Bible John truly was a man by the name of Peter Tobin. Tobin was convicted for the murder of a Polish student whom he had beaten, raped, and stabbed to death before hiding her body under the floorboards of the church he was working at as a handyman. Now, looking into Tobin's history, there's a lot of coincidences that point him towards being Bible John. He met his first life, his first wife at Barrowland, and in 1969 he moved to England. That's the same year the murders stopped. He stayed married for 20 something years. After the divorce, Tobin would bounce between living in Scotland and southern England or south of England, as I kept reading. I, I don't know if these two terms mean the same thing. To an ignorant American, they don't. But for those of you in more educated parts of the world, it, it may mean something. Um, after the, his conviction for the murder of the, the Polish student, police decided to kind of dig in deeper to his life and work backwards to visit these places where he had lived at while he was bouncing around. And at one of his former residents found the skeletonized bodies of two teenage girls who had gone missing in 1991. Both appeared to have been killed by stabbing. Now, further, Tobin kind of looked similar to that composite drawing when he was in his 20s. He was married three times, and all three of his ex-wives claimed that he was extremely violent, would often rape them, he'd lock them in the house, and unusually would become irrationally enraged whenever he learned that they were menstruating. Tobin claims he's a staunch Roman Catholic. There are also witnesses who say that on New Year's or Hogmany, he refused to go out and party. He would spend the night praying. And he also bragged about getting a hole-in-one once while golfing. He was known to use the alias of John Simple, which was very similar to one of the names Gene reported to the police, John Simpleson. In jail, Torben bragged to his fellow inmates that he had killed 48 other women, but most investigators call this hogwash. Fun fact. During a taped interview, when he was asked about his victims' families, Tobin said they could sit and spin, only in not such a nice way. So, you, you know, he, he was, he's a lovable character in this little play. Now, despite all these facts and coincidences and all these people saying he has to be Bible John, Gene 
was insistent up until her death that Tobin was not the man she spent the night with. She did not share a cab with this man. And there's also folks who note that Tobin preyed on the helpless, a foreign exchange student, his captive wives, teenagers, you know, children that he could kind of intimidate and control. It really wasn't part of his MO to just prey on random women. And further, Tobin's first wife claims that he couldn't be Bible John. First of all, they were on their honeymoon in Brighton when Jemima's killing occurred. Second, she says, Tobin has a pretty noticeable facial scar underneath his eye, yet no description of Bible John has ever included a scarred face. She goes on to say that he was not a religious man at all. She said in the 20 years they spent together, never once did she see him reading the Bible. Never once did she hear him quoting from the Bible. She claimed, too, that Tobin, you know, was a fan of the knife. That's what he used to threaten her. That's what he used to threaten his other two wives. That's what he used to kill his three known victims. This is a woman who has absolutely no reason to defend Tobin because she was so severely abused by him that she was left without the ability to ever have children. There's also the problematic fact that while Bible John is typically described as being six foot tall, Tobin was only five foot seven. And also, you know, Tobin's victims were young. Um, in fact, that foreign exchange student was the oldest and she was just barely 20. None of these would have been old enough to enjoy themselves at the 25 and older event Barrowland offered. So, Who's our next suspect? Second place in this popularity contest goes to a fellow by the name of John White. He was a dude who had previous run-ins with the law during his nights at Barrowland. And once police had to come kind of take him away when he got so heated in an argument between him and his female companion of the night that the staff became concerned something violent was about to happen. The night of Helen's murder... Remember, she was the one that fought back. White admitted himself to the hospital because he had several injuries he claimed he received during a fight. He gave the name of John White, which turned out to be totally false. And lots of the nurse, nurses and uh, other folks that worked in the hospital thought he really resembled that composite picture that was floating around. So they called the police. The police instantly put him under arrest. Remember, we're in this time of suspicions where he had to get a little card saying, I'm not Bible John. Um, and he was handcuffed to the hospital bed. But when doctors asked for him to be released so they could perform some additional tests, he escaped. But the police actually tracked him down and he didn't try to run a second time. He kind of submitted, admitted he lied about his name, gave his real name, which as far as I know, has not been made public. But the detective sergeant who was kind of over these officers said that they couldn't arrest White because his teeth didn't match the bite mark on Helen's thigh. And in fact, that detective sergeant ordered these, the detective and officer who did the arrest not to even question White. I mean, he was... That, that detective sergeant basically said he's not a suspect, let him go. We're not going to worry about him. And then years later admitted that 
well, this white fellow was probably the best suspect we ever came across. Now, there's also, we can go on and on and on with suspects. We could spend all day doing that. These are the top two. These are the two that you see discussed most consistently. So we'll stick with them in the interest of brevity. Um, And though it's been over 50 years, these three murders have never been solved. And it's, even though the case file is considered open, apparently detectives refuse to do any work on the case file and they don't want to be associated with it. So it's very likely that these murders will never be solved. Okay, it's time for me to show off that big old sexy brain of mine. And for all of you to mock me in your cars or offices or wherever it is that you listen to this. So I'm concerned that some assumptions have been made about this case and about the identity of Bible John over the years. Of course, of course, I don't have any special access to Scotland Yard and what they've dug up. I recognize that (laughs) I have what the newspapers report, not the tens of thousands of statements the police have in their files. But I'm still arrogant enough to call some of the theories into question. So going back to Pat's murder, like I kind of said, you know, what was this crime scene like? Very clean. She's left naked with no items around her whatsoever, except for that lone sanitary napkin. The killer demonstrated a desire to have a very orderly crime scene. In my opinion, he also managed to kill Pat with little to no struggle. He used a belt to choke her which to me allows for a much more intimate experience for the killer. He could look her in the eyes as he did it. Um, And, you know, this whole deal rings of a murder being orchestrated and very precise, almost surgical with purpose. Then we look at Jemima's death. She's left fully clothed. Her body's hidden away in an abandoned tenement. She was choked to death with her own stockings, which would almost certainly require the killer to be behind her, losing out on some of that intimacy. And then we look at Helen's death, the third one, and it's even more sloppy. She fought back. It appears like she almost got away. She was left partially undressed. There was semen left on her clothing. She also had that bite mark, which is really odd. And if you compare Pat's murder scene to Helen's murder scene, it's like two different people committed it, in my opinion. Pat's murder scene seems like something like the fictional character Hannibal Lecter would pull off. Helen's murder scene is like what you would expect from a frat boy. So I'm of the opinion that either Bible John had some sort of mental defect that was worsening over time or Bible John is not one person. It's hard for me to swallow the idea that somebody could go from being so delicately precise in how controlled the crime scene is presented to just the mess that is the third crime scene. And I have a, I too have a really, really hard time with the massive gap in time between Pat and Jemima's murders, especially when Helen's murder occurred only two months after Jemima's. That, that, that sequence is odd to me. 
either there are murderers that have not been linked to this case, which should have been, or if you believe in the one killer theory, there was some barrier that prevented Bible John from committing these murders for almost a year and a half. It does not appear from what I could find that law enforcement ever seriously entertained, at least publicly, a multiple killer theory after Helen's death. If they had, they potentially could have solved Pat's murder, maybe even Gemma's murder, since those investigations were not saddled with the bite mark evidence. While that should have been useful information, as you can see from what we've discussed, it became too big a focus for police and it interfered with the investigation, in my opinion. If you are able to catch a killer to one of those two murders, and he is this Bible John character, there's a chance that he will confess to all three. Even if he doesn't, you've still closed one murder case, right? I personally am very critical of the decision to not arrest John White and to not have him thoroughly interrogated to see if he had any connections to any of these crimes whatsoever. White still remains a popular suspect with many retired detectives who worked on this case this day. I can't understand why he would spend so many man hours visiting every barber shop in Glasgow, visiting every uh, uh, golf course in Scotland, visiting every dentist in Glasgow, going combing the neighborhoods of Glasgow street by street, door by door to collect 50,000 witness statements and then have a guy that kind of rings some bells here and you just say, nope, his teeth don't match, don't even talk to him. We, of course, still have Tobin, who's a very, very popular suspect in this case, but I don't think he fits the facts neatly. Um, I mean, we've gone over this to some degree, but the murder he was con convicted of, the first one, was a brutal one. I mean, he took a Polish student and stabbed her to death, then tried to hide the body. This is not the same person who killed Pat. Pat's death was an exhibition. In his past, Tobin would kill people and hide the bodies. There's no flair. There's no, a no attempt to send a message with those killings like there was with Pat. And I find it interesting that he claims to be a Roman Catholic while Bible John refused to admit being either Catholic or Protestant. And I know I keep harping on the first murder scene, but profilers have read so much into that scene. I mean, Pat's dead body was put on display. The killer's highlighting of her menstruation seemed or was deemed to be very significant, as if it was some sort of flaw or weakness of her womanhood that the killer grasped onto. It's also thought that he had to have a strong need for control based on how little he left at the crime scene. But we can't apply any of these characteristics to the other two crime scenes. But all those conclusions the profilers drew from the first crime scene are being applied unquestioningly to the other two murders, and I don't understand why. And let's not forget, this was a rough place to be living. The murder rate was extremely high. 
That doesn't mean that all three people must have been killed by different folks, but it's a factor to keep in mind as we think through this, right? I mean, if we've got a incredibly high murder rate and we've got three different crime scenes that don't totally line up on all fours very well, we have to entertain the possibility that there's more than one killer when folks are just carrying around freaking hatchets and razors. Now, if we want to believe that all three murders are the result of one man with a weakening mental state, I think that makes the menstruation evidence even more significant. We could hypothesize that Bible John was trolling for booty after his ventures out at Barrowland, and when he managed to snag a female, it was intercourse or bust at that point. If the girl said sex wasn't possible because she was having a visit from Aunt Flo, that could have triggered Bible John to the point where he declared the girl expendable. And to me, this would actually tie, tie Tobin closer to the murders because of his alleged violent and irrational reaction to his wives having their time of the month. So obviously, all in all, I think I fall into the Bible John doesn't exist camp. I think there were at least two killers, one who was never a suspect, and John White. This is totally, 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 totally speculation, not grounded in fact at all, but these are married women, and at least one of them, Pat, was having issues with her husband. This dude was used by the media to be the face of the victims almost because he was in the armed services, but if they were having such a hard time, you know, in America, the first suspect's always the husband, right? Could this guy have been involved? Now, I, again, I, I doubt it because after the death, he was forced to retire from the Air Force. He had to turn down a promotion because he had two boys he had to take care of all on his own. But people get weird. I mean, if you've watched that American murder documentary about Chris Watts, people can get weird. Plus, Pat's murder was the only one of the three that strike me as a highly personal kill. as I mean, again, as I've said, and as you can tell, I just can't get past her murder scene. That one's not like the others. It's like the old Sesame Street show. So obviously I'm walking away from this one thinking it's never going to be solved. Even if someone wants to dig into it, which I don't think would be coming from the police. I, I think it'd be a private citizen at this point who solves it. But even if somebody wants to dig into it, I think we're all starting from the wrong premise that there's a single Bible John and we're barking up the wrong tree. That's just if I shockingly happen to be correct in my analysis. But again, I will readily admit and stress even, I don't have access to much information in this case, just whatever you can find on the internet, that's what I have access to. I am making my analysis off of this extremely limited bit of intelligence. And I do think we have to applaud the heroic efforts of Scotland's law enforcement case and at least trying to gather evidence and leads. They did a bang up job. And it's shocking to me that the case was not solved at that time with all of those flyers and all of the boots on the street. While I can question some of the decisions made during the investigation, the effort deserves a gold star. So thank you again to Grant for suggesting this one. It was a fun one to dig into. I think it was the oldest listener request I had on my list. And I, for whatever reason, when I looked at it before, it hadn't grabbed me. But when I finally 
sat down and did some proper research. I mean, I it, it was fun. I, it's one of those where it makes me wish I had a huge budget so I could do, you know, proper research and get down into the nitty gritty of a case. But it, it was it was cool. So thanks again, Grant. So it's time that we delve into the ever popular palate cleanser. Here's what we've got this week. What happens when the blue ship and the red ship collide at sea? Again, what happens when the blue ship and the red ship collide at sea? Their crews were marooned. Get it? Like the color? Yeah. I shouldn't have to explain a joke, right? All right. Well, thank you, as always, for listening. You know, the influence our podcast wields continues to grow at a rapid rate. I'd like to think I'm your Randall Flagg or Mother Abigail, except I won't do anything to shape the world. I have no amazing magical powers. And, you know, again, life goal, sit on the couch, do nothing. Um, please keep on sharing the tape so folks can learn of our amazing show. Reviews are awesome, but only if the reviews are nice. Um, you can also subscribe to be in our cool kids club. Make sure you check out our Facebook group too. Uh, we have Instagram, Twitter, our website, kmhpodcast.com. We do a lot of fun, dumb stuff online, especially on Instagram. So I think it's worth your time as much as social media can be worth your time. Um, you know, you'll get to laugh at a funny monkey meme or, or something. So, all right. Well, I've, I've kept you late enough for one day. I'm sure your parents are worried about you. Make sure you come back next week so you can get another helping of true crime goodness. As always, remember, a goodbye isn't painful unless we never say hello again. So make sure you come back next week so I don't have to send out my goons to inflict pain in your life. Okay? Until then, Brad out. Thank you for listening to Kellen missing hidden make sure to rate subscribe and share questions email us at info at kmhpodcast.com